Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology. I am Matt Fox from Boston University, and I am joined once again by my friend and co-host, Dr. Haley Bannock from the University of Buffalo. Welcome back, Haley. Thank you. How are you, Matt? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm uh, getting ready for the semester of teaching, and you know, the summer always goes by so fast. So we're recording this in the summer, even though it'll be released in the fall. And uh, yeah, things seem pretty hectic this summer. Right. And so we always have to set the stage because people are going to be listening to this at a different time from when we're recording it. For those of you who want to feel nostalgic, you can remember back to when the Olympics was going on. Haley, are you watching the Olympics? I am. I love watching the Olympics. I love all the random sports. I love everything about it. But I will say this is my first Olympics, I think... Uh, maybe my first Olympics in the United States. Anyways, there's no coverage of any other teams. It's only the U.S. teams. I have to like read the Canadian news sites to figure out what's happening with Team Canada. I wish there was a bit better distribution of award winning are, for are all you, countries. Are you saying there are other teams? Um, yes, like Team USA can't just compete against itself. And so there are a few other countries in the Olympics. And I would like to learn about them and specifically Team Canada, the best team. Out so there. what I find most frustrating about the Olympic coverage is that when you when you turn on the television, because none of it's live, I mean, partly because none of it's live, but also most of it's not live anyway. Uh, during the hours that I'm awake, but you turn on the co- on the television coverage, and the guide has one block that is like 16 hours long, and it just says, you know, like women's soccer, and it'll name like three things, and you turn it on to see the women's soccer, and of course that's not what's on because, you know, something else is going on. It's skeet shooting or trampolining or whatever sports they've they've put on this year, and you can never I can never find what I want to watch. Yeah, so I just had this conversation with my seven-year-old this weekend because it's the first time he's really been interested in what you know what the sports are and watching the competitions. And it's never he's searching through the guides and it's never what they say. And and we just had this conversation about why in 2021 they can't make a more accurate time recording of the Olympic sports. And just to just to be clear, this is not the first time I've ever been compared to a seven-year-old. <laughs> in terms of the thought processes that I go through, but uh, I'm thrilled. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to compare you to him. I just meant you're not alone. That's what okay. I That's what I meant by that statement. Not that your thought processes are like a seven-year-old. And I think that's a great segue into the chapter today. No, so why don't you not. tell us? No, it's not. It's not, because I still have another question that I want to ask you. Oh, okay. Yeah, go for it. Because you asked last time uh, when we had Jay Kaufman on, you asked him the question, if he could compete in any Olympic sport, what would it be? And I want to know what you would compete in. I think that the funnest looking sport is without a doubt trampolining. That looks super cool, flying through the air, doing all those flips. So in a completely fictional world where I would get to choose my skill, it would be trampolining. What about you? So that's so interesting because it's the exact same one that I would have chosen because it for the same reason, because it looks so fun. And you you hear people talk about trampolining as a made-up sport. And I do not understand this. All sports are made up. Somebody <laughs> had to at some point just come up with the idea for the sport. So like why can't, you know, uh last so last time I remember watching the Olympics was the Winter Olympics of 2016. And we were in Australia at the time. Um, and so we would turn it on. And they were they were reminiscing about sports that had been removed from the Olympics. And one of them was uh, ski dancing. Where <laughs> people would dance uh, on a pair of skis and they would do these sort of little, you know, flips on their poles and dance around. And, you know, it's not something that I have to admit that I am all that interested in. By the way, you can probably guess what era ski dancing was, was in, but uh, it's not been around for a while. But you know, like, hey, you want to compete in ski dancing? Compete in ski dancing. I say go for it. Yeah, that I really, I would like to look up what ski dancing looks like because it sounds like it would be a lot of fun to watch. It looks a lot like a lot of fun, but I can't say that um, I could really see the uh, beauty in it. I will say it was not, it was definitely not my my top. Sorry. Uh, by the way, I just looked it up. It was, it was not ski dancing. It was ski ballet. No way. Ski ballet? Ski ballet. Yep. Google it and you will 
you will find a really interesting Olympic sport. I, I encourage everyone to Google ski ballet. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. that's really so I can't believe that's there. But there's also all sorts of crazy new sports. Skateboarding is in this year. Surfing is in this year. Like well, sk- skateboarding's been in for a long time. Oh, it has? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. So oh, surfing's yeah. the new one. Uh I don't know. Surfing could have been around. I, I actually don't know. All right. Well, somebody needs to, ch- to fact check us on these ones. All right. We will wait for that. All right, okay, good. so now I will segue into the to the main topic at hand here, which is chapter four of modern epidemiology, the chapter on measures of disease occurrence, measures of occurrence, we'll just say more more broadly. And to start us off, Haley, I want to ask you the question, is this the you have to eat your vegetables before you can eat dessert chapter? This is... No. No? No. I'm no? not sure I get the analogy, but the if analogy I The analogy is like, it's just sort of like the the chapter where we have to establish the basic definitions of things before we get to the, the fun and interesting stuff. There's, you know, it's not a lot in there. You just got, you got to do it because we don't, we don't eat our dessert without having eaten our vegetables first. It's just the rule. Okay. So, so based on that, I would say that this chapter is the meat. It's it's the main main course okay. of your dinner because it's the you know the foundation for everything else that comes afterwards. Okay, so first of all, for our vegetarian and vegan listeners, okay. it could also be the the tofu or the whatever. Yes. But fair enough. But it could be it could be the meat or the whatever you want to call it. But it's still the like it's still the part you got to get through to get to the fun stuff, or am I? Or you disagree with that? Okay, so I using that, I will agree with that. You have to get through this chapter, and it is not a light and airy beach read. This I'm... is not the chapter that you want to just kind of skim while you're lounging. It's a really dry piece of steak. That so, you have to get through. So the implications of that statement are that you, for most of the chapters in the book, you find these to be like a beach read, but this chapter just doesn't do it for you. I would say it's an issue on a scale where there's some chapters that, okay, you might be able to read on the beach. This, definitely not one of them. Okay. Well, no no spoilers, but but it does have a really great surprise ending. So we will, uh, we'll get to that. Okay. So I set it up that way because, you know, to me, this chapter is essentially about two different things. It's about the main, the four main measures of disease occurrence. So by disease occurrence, we mean the ways in which we are going to summarize the occurrence of disease. So they, they give us four incidence time, incidence proportion, incidence rate, and prevalence. So prevalence meaning that's our cross-sectional measure of disease occurrence, um, who has, you know, the whatever the disease or outcome we're interested in at a particular time point. And the other three all incorporate some aspect of time, whether it be the time until we have the event, the proportion of people who get the event over time, or the rate at which people get the event over time. The second thing that the chapter is is about are populations sort of the the people in whom we measure the disease occurrence. For me, the first part is pretty straightforward. I mean, I don't mean totally straightforward, but, you know, the the measures are things that, you know, I'm familiar with from my introductory epi course, talk about again in my intermediate course. So I'm I'm pretty pretty familiar with those. It's the it's the whole part on populations and cohorts where, you know, I start to get a little bit lost and I really have to train all of my attention, what little I have of my attention span left after the COVID pandemic on being able to make sure that I truly understand what they're talking about. Do you have that same experience? So I actually have the complete opposite. No. Swear. Swear. I can't believe we both like trampolining as our number one sport because we, I have absolute opposite experience with this chapter. I can get through and understand 
okay, the the population's part, the first chunk. But then when you start getting into all the um, measures of occurrence and how you get from one to the other, and I find that requires a lot of my mental energy. So I'm glad that we're doing this episode together so we can help talk the other through the parts that are challenging to us. Haley, I, I feel like I don't even know you anymore. <laughs> but it's it shouldn't be any surprise because I think I've said before that, you know, math and formulas are not my strong suit. And, you know, that, that stuff about, you know, going from one to the other, it, it's just a series of formulas and I don't really know any of it matters in the real world. Yep. Fair enough. Okay. So I simplified. You're right. You're right. There is a a whole part of the chapter that talks about the relations between these different measures. And I agree with you. I mean, I I think that's, you know, it's important that it's there and it's useful, but it's, it's not stuff that I'm going to probably use a lot in my career as an epidemiologist. At least I haven't so far spent a lot of time using it. Yeah. And then I think there's one other aspect of the chapter that you didn't mention, and that's this kind of two-page add-on on standardization, which I think is a really important topic. It's a topic that, you know, I think most intro-epi courses and, you know, beyond need to cover. It's important for students to understand it, for everyone to understand it. And then it's this I think even page and a half, you know, add on to the end of the chapter, which seems a bit out of place to me. What did you think about that? No, I totally agree with you. And in fact, I didn't even really take any any notes on that part of the chapter because standardization comes up in other places in the book. And so it didn't feel to me like we needed to spend a lot of time on it here. So do you think it's there in case folks stop their reading in chapter four? Like we need to introduce this right now. Like, well, I can't really understand the rationale for including it in this measures of occurrence chapter. Well, I mean, I, I guess it comes up because you can standardize, you know, measures of occurrence and may, you know, that, you know, if you're really focused, if you, let's say you're, let's say you're using the text as more of a reference and you go back to the section on, you know, measures of occurrence. I don't know why you would, but let's say you do, you're looking up something um, and you sort of want to be reminded of, okay, I can standardize these measures of, of occurrence. I, I don't really know. All right. Well, I'm glad it wasn't just me. So we won't talk about that very much in this episode. I don't think we'll have, you know, we'll get into the meat of that a little bit later on. I keep referencing or, or meat the tofu. today. <laughs> or the or tofu. The, Not sure what that's about. Okay, so before we go ahead, I just want to I just want to repeat something from the text that to me is like so fundamental that um, and I want to find out if this was something that came up in your course coursework, which is is sort of towards the beginning of the chapter. They note that the objective of most epidemiologic research is to obtain a valid and precise estimate of the frequency of disease occurrence or the effect of a potential cause on the occurrence of a disease. Did that come up for you in your coursework, this this specific text? I can't remember if there was a quote, but, you know, yes. Uh, yes, I, I do believe that that was part of the framing of our, our coursework. I always include this centrally as a frame, although it's a little bit different from the way I, the focus, which is that that middle part isn't really in there. So I would normally say the objective of most etiologic epidemiologic research is to obtain a valid and precise estimate of the effect of an exposure on an outcome, not specifically on the occurrence of disease. It's the way it's phrased is probably more accurate uh, because, you know, we do more than just etiologic epidemiologic research. Yeah, I mean, the sentence is very clearly structured. It seems a bit wordsmithed to be able to include both the descriptive type of epi as well as the etiologic epi in one statement of objective. Mm-hmm. I thought you were going to say the McMahon uh, definition of epidemiology, because I know that's something we've talked about, uh, you know, in the past about epidemiology as a study of the distribution and determinants of disease frequency in human populations. And and I know that you, um, I think you have an add on to that. You there's there's a part of it that am I getting this right, that there's you a part that, that, that you think is missing from that. So there is a definition of of epidemiology that is the study of the distribution and determinants of disease in human populations and the application of that knowledge to the control of disease. And it's that second part that I always gets me, which is the application to the control of disease. Is that the job of epidemiology? In part, it depends on what you mean by the application of that knowledge. Because if by application of that knowledge, we mean researching 
effective ways to control disease, then I would agree. But to me, that's still part of the ideology. It's the determinants, not of disease, but of controlling disease. If, on the other hand, we really mean going out and applying the knowledge that we learn from epidemiology to control disease, to me, that's public health. That's not epidemiology. But, you know, I suppose it just depends on how you define it. That's interesting. I mean, the time that we are in, in this COVID pandemic, I think, you know, more people know what epidemiologists are than ever probably in the history of the world, because for the first time, you know, there's epidemiologists on TV and et cetera. And I think it has highlighted that this application piece is part of epidemiology. I, I still, I still disagree. I, I think what you're, what, what we're, what you're responding to there is that epidemiologists are often also in the role of working to control disease. But is that, are they doing epidemiology when they do it? I, I'm not convinced that should fall under the definition of, of epidemiology. But, you know, the thing is, it's, it's largely semantics. Like, does it matter? Probably not. It's just, you know, for me, it's, it's an interesting discussion. The, the other piece that I think is missing is the distribution and determinants says nothing about prediction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do think part of the role of epidemiology is prediction. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think it should be central to the definition of epidemiology. You know, again, people are often interested in questions related to prediction, and many epidemiologists have expertise in that domain and work almost exclusively in that domain. And so they're no less of epidemiologists because they're not doing, you know, ideologic causal inference type of research necessarily. Yep, totally agree. Okay, so... Now we start to get into populations. And this is where uh, I just have to be totally honest. My mind gets broken a little bit. Um, and I start to, you know, like this is the, the chapter that, that I'm a, a, you know, doctoral student. Matt is reading this chapter and starts thinking to himself, gee, maybe I'm not uh, really cut out for this because I'm, I'm, I'm not getting it, I think, probably at the level the level of specificity that it probably should. So when they start to talk about populations, they say the simplest definition of population is a group of people who share characteristics or meet criteria that define membership in the population. They inevitably include restrictions to a particular time and usually involve restrictions in location or observed could be observed at a single point in time where the time scale is measured uh, or, or over time where the time scale is measured from some event. Fine. All good. So we have a population and it is defined by some characteristics or entry criteria. Okay. I, okay. I can work with that. Then they get into the distinction between closed and open populations. The distinction between closed and open populations depends in part on the time axis used to describe the population as well as on how membership is defined. So a closed population would be a population in which you know you enter it and you're always in it. An open population means you can come and go from the population. But they say the distinction depends in part on the time access used to describe the population, which is to say, as far as I see it, like any population, or not any population, but many populations could be considered closed or open depending on how you look at it. Do you share that? Yes, absolutely. I, I don't, I guess I'm struggling. Yes, I believe that to be true. There are times where a population could be deter, de, defined or could be ca- uh, classified as an open population where people go in and out. Or for some period of time, that po- you know that same group of individuals, depending on what criteria you're using, could be closed down. It could be you know restricted, and no longer people can enter. I don't mean the difference though is that in the definition, the difference is in the time scale. So the example that they give is all persons who ever used a particular drug would constitute a closed population if time is measured from the start of their drug use, their use of that drug. Mm-hmm. Drug use is probably not the right word. These persons would, however, constitute an open population in calendar time. So if we're looking in calendar time, new people start to use the medication, the drug all the time. And so the population can you know, add members all the time. But it's still you know, all the people who ever used a, a particular drug. In that sense, I could define any population I wanted, I would think, 
as a closed population or an open population? Why do I need the distinction? Well, I think that the distinction matters uh, for some of the other topics that come later in the chapter, right? So if you're calculating incidence proportion uh, versus you're calculating an incidence rate, you know, where you have people censored, et cetera. So I think that some of this is semantic because it matters for the concepts that come next. I agree with what you're saying, though, with that um, example, that those could be open or closed depending on how you've defined them. And why wouldn't I then just define my population based on what I wanted to to measure? I mean, you said, you know. Yes, I think that's that could be true, though, as long as they're concordant, right? So if you have a population that you, uh, let's say, it's an open population. People are coming and going, you know, all the time. I, I'm having trouble thinking of a, an example where people are, let's say, uh, antibiotics for something like an ear infection. Okay, You're, You want to study that as your children who are on antibiotics for this particular type of ear infection or whatever. Okay. So it's open in the sense that children are constantly being added and they're also leaving the population when they're no longer, you know, on this medication. Is that a bad example? I'm looking at your face. No, no. I'm just, oh, okay. I, I think you could define that either way. I mean, if you define yes, okay. so, it as... So let's, so I've defined it as this open population. Yeah. Okay. And that's how I describe it in my methods. If I were then to say, okay, I want to calculate the incidence proportion of antibiotic resistant ear infections or something, you know, that that is very clearly a mismatch with the type of population that has been defined. Because if I were calculating a simple incidence proportion in this open population, I need to, you know, consider the fact that kids are constantly leaving and constantly being added, you know, it affects the denominator of that that calculation. And so there's a mismatch there in terms of the population that I have defined and the calculation or the, you know, um, measure that I am getting from that population. Does that make sense? But couldn't I just then, you know, redefine my population, not based on calendar time, which is the way you just, I think you just described it, Mm -hmm. but rather define it as, you know, the time period at which they start the medication, in which case I can make it a, a closed population. Just to, just to clarify. So as they say, a closed population is a population that adds no new members over time and loses members only to death. Right. Now, new people are going to start taking the medication, but that is not the same as adding to the to the population if I'm not talking about calendar time, I'm talking about event time because you become a member of the closed population the minute you start taking the medication. And then I can you know, follow you and I can calculate an incidence proportion if I want. Well, uh, you just said you become a member of the closed population, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that that is a a phrase that doesn't necessarily make sense because you can't become a member of a closed population. I think you can. I mean, at some point there are no members until you become a member, whether that's through birth or meeting the, the criteria that defines the cohort. Right. So uh, sorry, I think population, that, uh, not cohort, population. Right. So, so I think part of this discussion, it's a bit of a, a semantic, it's it's confusing semantics that, because I think in many cases, people are talking about cohorts when they're trying to talk about populations. Okay. But I'm here talking about, I am still talking about populations. You can become a member of a closed population, I think. I thought that was the entire definition of a closed population is that you cannot add new members. Again, so I, to me, this comes down to whether we're talking about calendar time or event time. I can define a, a population of, you know, all people who are who have started a medication and I can look back in time so I can do it that way. And then, sure, I, I can, can't add new members because it's everybody who has you know, started the medication up until now. But I think of a the you know the population of people who have used a medication you become a member of that population over time so the way I th- like so for example if can i define a population as everybody who takes my 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 advanced epidemiology class so here i yes and you would say that's an open population and i would say it's closed is that the idea So again, are we talking everyone that takes your advanced class in the year uh, 2021? No, just ever. So yes, that's an open population. Okay. 
let's say I limited to 2021. They didn't, they, at some point, they had to become a member of that population, right? Correct. They were not in that population before they took my class. So at some point, I added 20 something members to that population, even that closed population, right? Well, because that is when you are assembling your population. But if, you know, once 2021 expires, once, you know, we go from December 31st to January 1st, 2022, you can no longer add members to a population that is defined by taking Matt Fox's advanced epi class in 2021. I, yeah, I mean, here's where I guess, I, I do agree with that statement, but I, I here's where I would say, you know, in my mind, and I, you know, I could be totally confused about this, that the population of people who took my class, who take my class, I should say, um, you know, can still be a closed population if I if I follow, you know, if, if the the time access is the time from enrolling in my class, it can still be a closed population. You meet the membership criteria, you're in the population. You can never leave the population. You once you are have taken my class, you have always taken my class. The only way you can leave that population is through death. But I still feel like I can add new members. But if I if I define that cohort uh, cohort population in terms of calendar time, then I would agree with you. It absolutely has to be an open cohort. Right, but but as you say that, you're saying I'm going to add new people to this closed population, and that phrase is a logical impossibility. You cannot add. That's the whole definition of a closed population, right? Is that you cannot add new people to it. Yeah, I I mean again, I I guess it comes down to whether you can you can only do this retrospectively. Can you only then retrospectively assign a closed co- or or define a closed population? Certainly that seems like the simplest way. Yeah, I mean I, I it doesn't feel right to me. It doesn't feel right because um I think in practice this is probably not all that common. A closed population. I uh, yeah. I mean, I guess prospectively. I, I, I mean, because you know. So let me let me just read this. Members of a closed population are those who meet the defining membership criteria, which might include age, sex, whatever, whatever. Um, sorry, age, sex, time restrictions, whatever, and then consent to participate in a research study. So there, that population to me sounds like a. You know, we're, we're talking specifically about a study population, but mm-hmm. okay, we'll come back to that. For each person who becomes a member, becomes a member. So you can become a member of a closed population, right? At the outset. The time when the last entry criteria is met is described as the index event or the entry time. It follows from the definition of a closed population that membership is permanent except for losses due to death. So again, I, you know, I don't quite follow why I couldn't define a closed population that you can become a a sort of new member in calendar time, but not in event time. So I guess I'm not fully understanding um, why this distinction matters so much to you between calendar time and event time with respect to the closed population issue. Um, Right. Fair enough. I'm probably doing a, a bad job of describing it, but I, you know, to me, it comes down fundamentally to this question of why? Why would there be a distinction? We can have open populations into the future, but we can't have closed populations into the future. You can have closed population to the future. You just can't add to them. It depends on what I, I guess. It depends on fundamentally what we mean by adding to them. Does you know adding to them mean? Yeah, I, I, again, here's where I, I, I lose myself. Because if you, you know, we're talking, okay, let's talk adding into the future. So um, 2022 is coming up. Let's say you're going to have 20 students in your class, advanced epi for that year. Okay. So you, for some period of time, will enroll students into your class. Mm-hmm. So it'll be open for enrollment for some period of time. And then once the year 2022 concludes, 
you cannot, there is no possible way for a student to go back in time to be added to that population group Mm -hmm. who took your class in 2022. Okay. So can I define a closed population that is everyone who took my class from the year between the years 2015 and 2030? Can you repeat that? Can Can I define a closed population as every person who takes my class between the years 2015 and 2030? Is that a closed population? I think if the date is January 1st, 2031, then yes. But I can't do it right now. I do not believe so. It's the same group of people, right? It's not because in the example I gave about 2022 to 2023, it is impossible to join the 2022 cohort once time has advanced past 2022. In your example, from 2015 to 2031, you are still, or 2030, you are still adding people to that cohort. But at the Sorry, end of, population. At the, at the end of 2030, it will all be the exact, it will be the fixed group of people. Correct. That can so no longer be added to. In 2030, I can define that group of people as a closed cohort. But in 2020, I cannot define that group of people. Yes, I believe that to be true. Yeah, see, that doesn't, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. How the exact same group of people using the exact same membership criteria can be both considered a closed and an open population simply depending on whether or not I am in the year that is, whether that time period has passed or not. Now, maybe this is all sort of semantics and does it, does it matter? Because, you know, to me, what matters is, do I have a fundamental understanding of who my population is and what I can do with them? And this is why, you know, I could be wrong about absolutely everything I've said so far. I'm not sure it fundamentally changes whether or not I can be a good epidemiologist. No, I, I believe that very much to be true. And, you know, it, we obviously have different understandings of, you know, this open and closed concept, but ultimately it's it's kind of an academic exercise, I think, more than and this anything is why, else. And this is why I find this chapter so challenging personally, because look, I suspect you're right and I'm wrong. But it just, I just can't wrap my brain around it. And it seems to me like this is something so basic and fundamental that we should be able to, we should be in complete agreement, having both read the exact same chapter and, you know, both had, you know, years of experience working on these things. Like we should get it. And I, you know, I will say uh, when I took over the course that I teach on advanced epidemiology, there were some slides that dealt with this, you know, populations and, and and cohorts. And I took them out because I got myself so twisted around that I, I worried that I was going to confuse students more than I was going to help them. And the question, you know, then becomes, is my, is my course worse off because I haven't fundamentally convinced, you know, explained this to students. And I'm, you know, I don't think so, but I, I would still like to completely wrap around, you know, my head around it. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm surprised, not because in I I could equally be completely wrong on this topic, but I I don't there's many things that confuse me and this isn't really one of them because I just always ask myself, can new people be added? Yes, no. It's like a flow chart in my mind, right? And so in any instance where you can say yes, new people are being added to this group, then yes, it's open. If you can no longer add new people, then no, it's closed. And so because I see this as a kind of binary type of thing, it helps simplify that thought process in my head. And you take it to levels of nuances that I, I just, I hadn't thought of before, but they're really interesting questions. Yeah. I, so so when I go back and read the text, I, I find I I... I just get more confused. So let me let me just reread what I said before, which is all persons who ever used a particular drug would constitute a closed population if time is measured from the start of their use of the drug. 
So that sentence is written all persons who ever used past tense, right? So that would agree with what you said, past tense. Um, you know, so, you know, that would be one piece of evidence in favor of, of the way you see it. Then they say, um, these persons would, however, constitute an open population in calendar time because new users might accumulate over a period of time. And I would certainly agree with that. If we're, if we're, we're using time, calendar time as the axis, most populations are going to be open populations because new people can be added and, and therefore it is clearly open. And then they say, if, as in this example, membership in the population always starts with an event such as initiation of treatment and never ends thereafter, this population is closed along the time axis that marks this event as the index time. To me, that says I can define a population based on an event. It doesn't matter when that happens in calendar time. And therefore, it can happen in the future. And I can define a closed cohort of people who ever use a drug that's still a closed population, even though there will be people in the future who will take that drug. But, you know, I'm very open to the idea that I'm wrong about that. Uh, what, what page is that on, Matt? So that is on page 55. I read that to mean if you want to say all of the individuals who took drug A in 2015, 2016, that is a closed group. Mm -hmm. So it's defined by an index event taking the drug. It also has this calendar time component to it. That can no longer I, be added to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I, I see what you're saying there, but it doesn't say that it has to be in calendar time, right? I mean, it, I think all persons who ever used a drug would constitute a closed population if time is measured from the start of their use of the drug. Persons would, however, constitute an open population in calendar time because new users might accumulate over a period of time. And I would, you know, that's where I, I think we're, we're, we're more in agreement about open populations. It's what we think can constitute a closed population. Right. And I guess, yeah, I, you're, you're dragging me into your death spiral a little bit right I, now. And I'm sorry because I'm, I don't think I'm necessarily, you know, doing any good. And, and obviously for, you know, for the listeners, I think what it illustrates is it's, you know, you could be, you can, you can interpret these words in different ways. There's probably a, a, a right or a wrong answer, but the real question is, is it going to change the way I'm going to, I'm going to be an epidemiologist? And I, I don't think so. I don't think so. And I think it's actually not intentionally, but a very beautiful example of how really simple concepts can quickly become very confusing, you know, mm -hmm. like, oh, it's just the chapter that includes open and closed. It's, you know, oh, yeah, I know what those are. You, do you add people or do you not add people, you know? And and then you get into the weeds of what all these, you know, very precise definitions are, and it can become very confusing very quickly. Yep, totally agree. So can we move on from populations? I, I want to understand yep. what how you view um the distinction between populations and cohorts, because um, I think that that is another challenging part of this that um, requires some thought. Yeah, I mean, so I I struggle here too. So there is, we're getting into the next section of the chapter, which is entitled "Populations versus Cohorts," and they say, you know, the term "population" as we use it here has an intrinsically temporal and potentially dynamic element. Okay. Temporal in time, dynamic changing, right? So mm -hmm. populations can change. One can, they say one can be a member at one time, not a member at a later point, later time, a member again, and then so on. The term cohort, which is sometimes used to describe any study population, we reserve for a narrower concept, that of a group of persons for whom membership is defined in a permanent fashion or a population in which membership is determined by satisfying a set of defining events and so becomes permanent. So to me, 
under these definitions, cohorts are always closed. Yes. So that was very, yes. So I agree based on the text here, cohorts as they're defined here are always closed. However, I have definitely heard the phrase open cohort before. Sure. And so I, I wonder if this is another one of those things where epidemiologists need to be more careful with the language they're using. Um, or if the concept as defined here is overly narrow, overly conservative, and there is something as an open cohort. I, I, this, that particular point, open cohort, um, I wrote is open cohort an oxymoron like jumbo shrimp. That was what I wrote in my notes. Yeah. I, I, and I, again, I'm with you on this one. I, I, this is, this is where my, my brain twists a little bit in, into knots because, um, you know, the, making the distinction between a populate a closed population and a closed cohort isn't clear to me, but it is clear to me from these definitions that they consider a cohort to be membership defining. Once you're in, you're always in. And I think an important point, this is worth just noting, that you can't be lost to follow up from a, a cohort. You can be lost to follow up from a study, but you're still part of the cohort. So, you know, in that sense, the, the loss to follow-up problem becomes a study problem, not a, a cohort problem. Again, I just want to make it clear. In some ways, I consider this the hardest chapter in the book. I know that seems impossible, but like this for me, as and I just want to say when I was a student, like this is where I, I, I stumbled. And it wasn't like until I got some distance on it that I thought, okay, I get the later concepts better than I get this. And not totally having this nailed down hasn't impeded my my progress. And so I, you know, I I don't feel like um the nuances that we're discussing are the kind of things that are gonna hold somebody back from doing good epidemiology. Right. At least and I, I hope at least I hope not. Maybe I'm just saying that to make myself feel better. <laughs> no, I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I agree with it too, because clearly there's some points that confuse me as well. But I think it's also a good point that as a reader of this textbook, the reason why it's so challenging is that you won't necessarily understand well, clearly, every single part of this book. And that's normal. Mm-hmm. For all of us, you yeah. know, that there's a reason why we all find this book so challenging and, and there's so much to discuss is that it's not easy. And yep. so if you're feeling overwhelmed by what this content is, just know that Matt and I share those feelings clearly as well. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. And th- so then they say with this definition, the members of any cohort constitute a closed population along the time axis in which the chronologically last defining event is taken as the index time. So you can have a, you know, a, a population of people that you're recruiting over time. I mean, like, so, so if you think about it, like if we recruit people into a cohort study, we're all, you know, over time, we're recruiting new members. Yes. Right. So in calendar time, it's open. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we ever think of the, we don't, we wouldn't think of those cohorts as, as open. They're closed because, we're going to recruit a you know a, a number of people based on a defining event, and it's the event which defines membership into the population and the time period at which we start to follow you. And once you're in, you're you're always in. You could redefine that as an open population in calendar time, but why would you? Right, and I don't I don't think you know to answer that question. Why would you? I don't think it matters to be mm-hmm. honest. But in your wording, you are de- describing an open population. I don't think I am. You're, I don't think it, I you're am. including new members. Only in calendar time. But, but I mean, if, if, if that were the case, then every cohort study that is not a, you know, a retro, any cohort study where we have to recruit people is an open population. During the period that you are recruiting them. So how do they become, how do they become, how are they open at one time point and then closed at another time point? They're closed because at that time I mean, point you can about, add no new members. Is um, that is that the distinction you're making? Right. 
Yes, exactly. So when you think about, you know, I'm starting this new study, I got a grant to do it, it's open enrollment, and then my I, I, I recruit my thousand people, enrollment is closed, and then it becomes a closed population. So adding to the confusion related to terminology. Because that's um, what we needed is more confusion. More confusion. But I think that this is a point that, or this next section that we'll talk about, about terminology, um, where we talk about the source population, the study population, and the target population. This is an area that I wish we could all use more consistent terminology because the definitions seem relatively simple to me, yet it also seems like there's six different ways to say each of these things, and I can never figure out what someone's talking about when they use the term unless I actually read the sentence in a paper that they um, have attached. So, so Matt, what are your thoughts on these ideas of source, study, and target populations? I, I mean, I think they're they're important, so I think it's, it's probably, we probably need to define each. Sure. So, so the source population is, as is defined in the textbook, is the population from which persons will be sampled and included in a measurement of disease frequency. Uh, the study population is the subset up to a complete census of the source population whose experience is included in the measurement of disease frequency. And the target population comprises the persons for whom information gleaned by the measurement of disease frequency will be relevant. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think these are, this part is, is well-defined and mostly clear to me. The one thing that I, I always, you know, pause on is they define source population as the population from which persons will be sampled. Sampled is a funny word there. So it's, it certainly is a correct word. And it makes a lot of sense in the context that we're in, which is we are now talking about measures of disease frequency, not measures of association. So we're not talking about comparing measures of disease frequency yet. That's in the next chapter. Here, we're simply talking about you know, measuring, say, the incidence of a particular disease over a time period. And if we want to do that well in relation to a particular population, then the study population um, needs to be a, a a good representative sample of the source population. Most often, though, I would say we are, not most often, but when we get to etiologic epidemiology or measures of association, what we're really doing is we're comparing two measures of disease frequency. And there, I would say the study population is a sample of the source population, but it is rarely, maybe I shouldn't say rarely, but I'm going to say rarely, it is rarely a random sample of the source population. You know, we don't go out and randomly sample exposed and unexposed people to be in our study. We take a convenient sample. We take those who show up, you know, at our clinic and consent to be in the study or, what, what, you know, whatever it is that we use. Um, you know, so there is where I think, you know, the difference between study population and as a representation of the source population gets a little tricky. But overall, I, I like these definitions. So I think I, I agree with you um, that I like the source and the study population definitions. I thought of, for a while about this definition of target population as it's defined here. So when I use the phrase target population, um, I usually use it as the group of people to whom I want my study results to generalize to, Mm -hmm. right? And that is different than the information gleaned from the measurement of disease frequency will be relevant. I don't understand that terminology. Okay. You're going to have to explain a little more because to me, those, the, the definition you gave sounds very much like this definition, that the information will be relevant, I interpret to mean essentially the information generalizes to that population. So when I think of relevance, I think about, you know, learning about, let's say, um, heart disease in men, right? That information could be relevant for me if I am worried about my father's diet and I want to learn more about his Mm. diet. 
right? That information from a study on heart disease in men would not be generalizable to me. No, but you're not interested in you. You're interested in your your father. Right, but that's that's the word relevant. Information from any study could be relevant to anyone. You know, everyone listening could have a male in their life that that information could be relevant to, but it, it doesn't mean that that information is generalizable to me. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think we're talking about relevant in the sense of you would be interested in it. It is relevant to the population that you are interested in. You're interested in, you know, a, a, a male probably of a, a specific age. Um, therefore, that information is relevant to the question you're trying to ask, which is what is, you know, the, the disease frequency for that person. I, I hear what you say and that relevant could be could be interpreted there to be just sort of general relevance, but I don't think that's the way, I, I don't interpret them to mean that as general relevance, as relevant to the, the question that you're asking. Right. And I guess for a textbook where we just spent one hour and one minutes, um, you know, arguing back and forth, not arguing, bantering back and forth about the definition of the words open and closed, I... I, I think about every single word choice and that word relevant, I found to be confusing. Yep. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Should we, um, should we end it there? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I think we should end it there. And I hope that this didn't confuse people. I hope that uh, this helped everyone see, you know, that the basic definitions always have more behind them. And, you know, it, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of room for debate in all of these topics. So I, I completely agree. And I, as I say, I think that's probably a good place for us to leave it and end this episode. Um, before we go, I do want to say for those of you who are members, who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting Coming up in June of next year in sunny Chicago. Chicago. Sunny Chicago. Is it sunny in Chicago? Did I just make that? Oh up? yeah, no, in June. It's it can be really warm. Yeah. It's also windy. I know that. Not in June, just in general. Uh it also gets you access. Did I not did I make that up? Chicago's the windy city, right? It is the windy city. I just okay. I don't know. I didn't make that up. Uh it also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you access to some really great learning materials seminars and activities find out more at epiresearch.org so there's no www in there it's just epiresearch.org we also want to plug our sister podcast from the american journal of epidemiology that is casual inference casual not causal if you like this podcast we think you'll like that one and other than that we are grateful that you tuned in and listen and look out for our next episode in a couple of weeks. So just a reminder that the views expressed in this podcast by both the hosts and any of our guests are ours and their views alone and do not represent the views or opinions of the Society for Epidemiologic Research.